Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to contemplating how God's preached word impacts every moment of our lives. This sermon was preached at Holy Cross in Kearney, Nebraska by Pastor John Rasmussen. sure that some of you have seen the commercial uh, that aired on at the Super Bowl uh, by Rocket Mortgage, which illustrates the difference between being pretty sure and certain. Anybody seen that? Yeah, it's pretty funny. There's this couple that's walking through a home that they're considering buying, and the wife asks, are we even sure that we can afford this house? And the husband responds, I'm pretty sure we can. And then all of a sudden, Tracy Morgan appears out of nowhere. He's lounging in the bathtub. And he says, pretty sure, why not be certain? And so the wife says, well, what's the difference? He says, let me show you. And then in a series of quick scenes, we see the very often life and death difference between being pretty sure and certain. So for example, uh, they're skydiving out of this airplane and Morgan says, I'm pretty sure that these are parachutes. And then there's this poor girl with a, like a Hello Kitty backpack, and she says, mine just has a sandwich in it. And he says, that's fine, and then he pushes the next person out of the plane. It's not certain, it's pretty sure. And as the commercial draws to a close, the last scene is that you have uh, Tracy Morgan is driving this car with the family in the back seat, and he's accelerating over uh, this uh, bridge, this uh, drawbridge that's closing, and he says, I'm pretty sure we can make it. And then, of course, they all scream as they go over the edge into the water. And then they go back to the, the house that they're looking at, and the wife says, certain is better, right? Certain is better than pretty sure. Now, if we want certain instead of pretty sure with something like being able to afford a 30-year mortgage, then how much more ought we to be certain about something as long as eternity? rather than just pretty sure. As John brings his letter to a close, he reveals what he's been up to all along in these pages. All along, he has been trying to bring this community to a sense of certainty about the everlasting life they have in Jesus. He's written to this community of believers so that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have everlasting life through Jesus Christ, God's Son. And this letter has been preserved and passed down to you and me so that we might have certainty rather than being pretty sure. In these past weeks, we've seen that John is writing to this community of Christians, likely in the city of Ephesus, because they had experienced a rift in their community. This group of teachers whom John calls deceivers, false prophets, and even antichrists, They had sown confusion in the church about who Jesus is and what he had come to accomplish, and then after that, they left. And so both their false teaching and their prideful exit from the church had sown not only pain and confusion, but also a deep sense of uncertainty. So these Christians were probably wondering, what if the false teachers were right? What if they were teaching about the true Jesus? What if they were the true children of God and we who have been left behind in this community are not? 
What if they have everlasting life and we don't? And so we see John's pastor's heart shine through as he addresses this community and their confusion. Look with me at verse 13. Let's go ahead and read verse 13 together. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Not pretty sure, right? Certain. That's what John has been doing in this letter. He's been patiently, gently moving this wounded community from uncertainty to certainty, a certainty that is not rooted in anything other than the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. In fact, that's how his letter began. Let's go back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. John says, as he opens, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's talking, of course, about Jesus. John writes to them not as one who had just heard about Jesus and not as one who had just come up with some ideas about Jesus that he wrote down, but John writes to them and to us as one who had walked with Jesus for three years, who saw him breathe his last, who saw that spear pierce his side. He writes as one who ran to the tomb on Easter morning and found it empty And as one who later that day encountered the risen Christ, and then many times after that during the 40 days that followed before his ascension, he writes as one who saw our Lord ascend and receive the Spirit on that first Pentecost. You see, John is testifying to us with three of his five senses. He's saying, look, I have seen this Jesus, I have heard this Jesus, I have touched this Jesus, and this is something that the false teachers did not have on their resume as they taught otherwise. And so John is really saying to both them and to us that you can trust me when I testify concerning God's Son. And so as John's letter comes to a close in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, or the Apostle is rather, he's going to uh, wrap up his closing argument by inviting three witnesses to take the witness box. First the water, then the blood, and then the Spirit. In each of these, he says, testify or bear witness to the truth of God's Son, and he says all three of these testimonies agree. So witness number one that he calls to the witness stand is the water. And by the water, he's referring back to the baptism of Jesus in the waters of the Jordan River at the hands of John the Baptist. And you may remember that at the baptism of Jesus, the voice of the Father testified, this is my beloved Son. You may also remember that the Spirit descended and rested upon Jesus as he began his ministry. And so both the testimony of the Father and the descending of the Spirit confirm that Jesus Christ is God's Son who has come in the flesh as the ministry begins. Witness number two 
that John calls forward is the blood. And by blood, John refers likely to Jesus' death. And not just that John saw Jesus die, but rather that he was there at the foot of the cross when the soldiers pierced Jesus' dead body with that spear and the water and the blood flowed out. In fact, John says very clearly in chapter 19 of his gospel, verses 34 and 35, that he bears witness to having seen this, to having been at the foot of the cross and having seen both the water and the blood pour out from our Lord's side. And witness number three is the Spirit. Jesus Himself says in John 15, 26, that the Spirit testifies or, or bears witness about Him. This is what the Spirit does. John's reminding us that it's through the Holy Spirit that we hear about Jesus and come to trust in Jesus. In other words, the Spirit and the Spirit alone is the one who connects you and me to the real events of the water and the blood that save us. Since we cannot by our own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ or come to Him, but the Holy Spirit must call us, gather us, enlighten us, and keep us to the very end. So it is the Spirit alone that leads us to know for certain that we have everlasting life in Christ. The Spirit doesn't deal in pretty sure The Spirit deals with certain. That certainty is found in Christ. As we fast forward from the first century to the 21st century, right now in this moment, the question I have for you is this. What about you? Do you know for certain that you have eternal life in Christ? Are you pretty sure or are you certain? And what does that certainty depend upon? You see, the difference between the two is really a matter of life and death. In fact, the difference between the two will shape how you live your life every moment before you pass. For the purpose of this sermon, at least, I can think of two reasons why we might be pretty sure but not certain about having eternal life in Christ. First, we may be pretty sure but not absolutely certain because we are stuck in doubt about who Jesus is and what He's done. You know, there's just so many voices out there saying so many different things about God and Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. So many different voices out there saying different things about even the purpose of life. And so we might say, how can I even know for certain? We may be tempted by an agnosticism that says... I'm not going to put all my cards on Jesus because I just can't know for sure. And second, we may just assume that we have eternal life without recognizing that this life comes from Christ and Christ alone. In other words, eternal life is not the default condition of all people, but that it's rather something given to us in Christ and Christ alone. Let's look at that first problem of doubt. I distinctly remember taking some some college philosophy classes and being confronted in some of those readings with doubt. I wondered, what if I'm wrong about Jesus? I think I was reading something in my philosophy class by either David Hume or Friedrich Nietzsche and wondering, oh my gosh, what if I'm wrong? I had experienced 
in high school the forgiveness of my sins and the change of life because of the gospel, and I could not explain those things apart from Jesus. But I started to wonder, what if this is just a fad I'm going through, and what if these are just feelings and not reality? Well, that painful question pressed me deeper and deeper into study, the study of the New Testament and the study of great Christian thinkers who have wrestled with the same questions. This doubt pressed me deeper and deeper into seeking truth by seeking God. In other words, my doubts did not lead me into complacency, but rather my doubts pressured me into a quest for truth, sometimes kept me up pretty late at night. And so I listened to the testimony of the witnesses. I cross-examined them. I tested them over and over to see if they were indeed truthful because I did not want to give my life to something that's not real. And the answer that I came up with, I hope, is obvious by my presence in the pulpit today. I found their witness trustworthy. Now, it would take more than just a few sermons or conversations to go through all the reasons why. It's one of the reasons we have a podcast is so we can talk about these things outside of the 20 minutes I get up here. Uh, If you want to go back and listen to some of the podcasts around Easter about the question of the resurrection, uh, those are for the taking. But briefly, I want you to consider today four things about the witnesses who testify concerning Jesus Christ, both John and the others. I want you to notice first that these witnesses are many and not few. We have in the New Testament 12 apostles, not just one. We have a whole jury, right? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that above and beyond the 12 apostles, there were 500, actually over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And these people were well known in the early church so that you could cross-examine them. And many of these were still alive when the New Testament was being written, and many of them helped with its composition. And so they could vouch for the accuracy of the resurrection. And I want you to see this. You know, sometimes we may say things like, all religions are the same. That only makes sense if you don't think about it. What makes Christianity different than, say, Islam is that Christianity rests upon the witness of many, whereas Islam rests upon the testimony of Muhammad alone. Or say Mormonism, which rests upon the testimony of Joseph Smith alone. In the Christian faith, we have a multitude of witnesses, whereas in other faiths, we must accept the testimony of one person. I want you to notice, second, that these witnesses require high credentials Maybe you noticed in our reading from Acts 1 today, if you weren't distracted by that gruesome scene of the bowels gushing out, sometimes the scriptures are very just descriptive, right? That scene where the 11 apostles meet after Jesus' ascension to replace Judas. And notice what they require for his replacement. They require that the replacement for Judas will be one who had been with Jesus from his baptism to his ascension, right? In other words, to be part of the 12, you have to have the water and the blood on your resume. 
course, the Apostle Paul later becomes an apostle, but only after fiercely persecuting the church of Jesus Christ until Jesus stopped him in his tracks on the way to Damascus and revealed himself to him. I want you to notice third that the witnesses about these witnesses, by that I mean the New Testament, is abundant and early. By abundant, I mean that we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in our possession. And by early, I mean that some of these manuscripts come to us from the second century, which means that they are closer to the actual events than most events that we have recorded in ancient history. So, for example, we have about 210 copies of the works of the philosopher Plato compared to the 5,000 plus we have of the New Testament. And the earliest manuscript that we have of the works of Plato was, uh, basically has a span, a gap of about 1,200 years from when we believe that Plato wrote these things. Do you see with the New Testament that we're dealing with first century, second century? Historically speaking, that's not a lot of time when it comes to things being recorded. Of course, these things were recorded, but the earliest copies we have available are shortly after in the second century. I want you to notice, fourth, that the testimony of these witnesses almost always came at a cost. Church history tells us that almost all of the twelve apostles went to their death because of their testimony. They refused to deny that Christ is risen, that He is risen indeed, even when it cost them much. Almost all of the twelve apostles went to their death. Of course, John was boiled in oil but did not eventually die a martyr's death. He died of natural causes. However, he is the exception of the twelve. And then the Apostle Paul catalogs in his long list of sufferings in his writings, and he was likely beheaded in Rome. And the same was true for the first three or four centuries of the church. The first three or four centuries of the church was marked by the blood of the martyrs who refused to deny Christ, but rather went to their death. And these witnesses had no money or popularity or comfort to gain, in fact, quite the opposite. Their witness reminds me of the words of the mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal who once said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. And so the New Testament is the witness of those who lost their heads, were impaled, skinned alive, sawn in two, and even crucified upside down. These witnesses were certain about Jesus, not just pretty sure about Jesus, which means they deserve our attention. We should listen to them. In my years of ministry as a pastor, I've often had conversations with those who have distanced themselves from the church or from Jesus or who maybe even attend worship with a skeptical attitude. And in these conversations, I've noticed a consistent theme on this topic of doubt. That yes, there is doubt, but in my experience, there's often very little to no investigation regarding that doubt. And so in other words, the one who is doubting is often not also at the same time desperately searching for answers, reading the New Testament carefully and patiently, or reading Christian thinkers as they wrestle with these issues. And so I often wonder if doubt isn't always just a spiritual affliction or a cross to bear 
sometimes doubt may be a very convenient way to keep Jesus and his lordship at arm's length. Because there's a lot on the line, right? How Alexander the Great died, it doesn't really matter to me, and it doesn't change my life. Whether Jesus is the risen Son of God, to whom all will bow one day, that makes a difference, right? That's not a neutral question. It's got a cost to it. You see, if Jesus really is the Son of God, then doesn't that mean that we can no longer say that sin isn't a big deal? If Jesus is truly the Son of God, that means that loving our brothers and our sisters in the close fellowship of a church community is not just an optional thing. It's integral. You see, doubt often offers us the perpetual false comfort of keeping God at a distance. I can have one foot in and one foot out. I can have the idea of God when it works for me or helps me, but not enough that it costs me something. But eventually, and likely sooner than you expect, the ground will part and the side that you lean to the most will be the one that you fall on for better or for worse. These things are serious that they deserve our attention, our careful thought and investigation. In fact, the author and speaker Tim Keller laments that many who depart from the Christian faith don't actually depart from Christianity. They depart from a caricature of it that they had in their mind. They're not actually even leaving the real thing because they never knew what the real thing was. And the second reason that we might be pretty sure but not certain about eternal life is that we think that eternal life has something to do with our goodness. So maybe like in my grandparents' generation, you know, people would busily work hard and hope that they did more good than bad in their life so that the scales would tip in their favor on Judgment Day. But I would say that more often than not, people don't live in that state. I would say that most people in America think that they're going to some version of heaven or everlasting life when they die. I would say that most people just assume that this is the destiny of all law-abiding, mostly nice American citizens. In fact, many may even enter into a church community assuming that they have eternal life on the basis of their own goodness or efforts. But when we come into God's community, the church, we must first acknowledge that we have no right to everlasting life. We must acknowledge that before we are in Christ, we are dead in our sins, slaves to ourselves, and even enemies to God. This is the language Scripture uses. So when we baptize children, the order of service makes no mention of how cute and sweet they are, and they typically are. But Scripture tells us clearly that we are born into the bondage of sin and that we desperately need saving through Christ alone. Or when we confirm kids or welcome new members into our church community, we are not declaring that they are pretty good people who God would never deny on Judgment Day. Rather, we are welcoming people into our community who have admitted that they have no right whatsoever to everlasting life except for Jesus and Jesus alone. That we will stand before God as justified, loved, accepted children of God on that last day only because of what Jesus has done 100% and not even a shred of what we have done. 
if you're pretty sure that you and God are good because of anything good that you've done, then you need to wake up before it's too late because that won't stand. It's Christ and Christ alone, nothing more and nothing less. But for those who have come to the end of themselves and have seen Jesus Christ crucified on the cross, there can only be certainty, never pretty sure. For those who have died with him in baptism and feast on him in this supper, there's not pretty sure, there's just certain. You see, everything that we do in this church community is all about certain, not pretty sure. We gather around the water and the blood and the testimony of the Spirit, right? In the water of baptism, that's where God says certain. In the feast of Christ's body and blood, that's where God says your salvation is certain. As the Spirit testifies from this pulpit as He is now, He's giving you that gift of certainty in Christ and Christ alone. That's why when you confess your sins and the pastors share that word of absolution, we don't say, it's a called and ordained servant of, word, of God's word, I, I tell you that your sins are pretty, pretty sure they're forgiven, right? No. Everything we do in this community is about certainty. And may God continue to grant us that certainty grounded in Jesus and in Jesus alone because it's from that certainty that everything good flows in our Christian life. Every good work, every little bit of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control flows from that assurance that we belong to God through Jesus and Jesus alone. Amen. At this time, I want to go ahead and welcome our, our seniors, our graduates, to the front. Uh, so if you're a senior here, you're graduating, come on up to the front. We can just spread out a little bit. We want to hear God's word as we celebrate with you and also uh, give you a blessing. Thank you, by the way, to everybody who helped plan and, and put together uh, the graduation reception in the Friendship Hall. Thank you, Megan. Uh, thank you, everybody, who put that together uh, this morning. I want to share with you uh, God's word from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. This is what Paul says. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with graduation, right? But it actually has a lot to do with graduation and your future. It was about 20 years ago that I was standing where you're standing, uh, graduating, and I remember that during my senior year and during the years of college, I was often asked the question, so what are you going to do with your life? And if you know what you're going to do, that can be a fun question to talk about. But in my case, it was kind of an intimidating question because I thought, I hope I don't mess it up, right? I hope that I, that I get through college. I hope that I, that I get a good job that will make my parents and my peers proud, right? I hope I don't mess it up. And maybe you guys know exactly what you're going to do. And maybe you'll do it in four years and just onward, right? Uh, but maybe you're going to get into three years of college and you're going to say, 
I don't think I want to do this. And you'll change your major for the third time, right? Or maybe you'll get uh, into a career and you'll think, I think I need to go back to school because I don't think I want to do this 40 hours a week. Uh, and the reason I share that with you is, is not to stress you out or make you worry. Um, I believe you're going to do good things. Uh, but I want you to hear this word. The particulars of what you will do in college, post-high school, training, career, those particulars of what you do with your life are not really as important as what God has already done for you in Christ. Did you hear the word? It's by grace that we are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not by our own works. It's not by what you'll accomplish. The work is finished. It's done. And so the even greater reality of who God is shapes who you are. Beloved children of God, loved and accepted, not because you get a great degree and do something great with your life, right? But it does shape what you do. Did you hear what Paul said? He said that you have been created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, right? That God ordained for you to do. And as you receive God's blessing and as you graduate and as you go forth out into the world, God has prepared many, many good works for you to do. And those correspond to your unique personality, your unique experience, the person that God created you to be in Christ. So go with that encouragement, whether you've got an easy four years and then off to a career that you love or you struggle a little bit in figuring it out. Know that the Lord is with you and that he has purposes for you in Jesus Christ. Now let's close our eyes and bow our heads as we receive God's blessing. May God the Father who created each of you, who intimately wove you together in your mother's wombs. May he keep you and cause you to use every gift and talent that you have been given to the praise of his glory. May God the Son, Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose from the dead, cover you with the water and with the blood so that you might walk confidently in the salvation he gives. And may God, the Holy Spirit, who called you in holy baptism, continue to call you each and every day that you might remain strong and true in this Christian faith and live a life of abundant good works in your study and your work. May this God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you and preserve you as you go forth 